0: Hi everybody, Pete Sardis here for The Lawyer You Know, and we are back talking about Hulu's miniseries, The Dropout, and we're gonna discuss episode five. But before we do that, please remember, this is a spoiler alert. I am gonna talk about what's happening in the episode. We're gonna talk about what's true, what's false, and what's true-ish. But before we do that, again, as always, please, if you enjoy the episode, give me a thumbs up. If you're enjoying the series, please subscribe to our channel. And if you have questions and comments about this particular episode or anything that's going on generally about the dropout, please leave them down below and I will try to answer those questions as best as I can for you. The writers decided to name this episode, The Flower of Life. And I think that they decided to do that because this particular episode really demonstrates the development of our understanding of Elizabeth Holmes. And we're starting to comprehend like, kind of the true nature of what is really happening in Theranos and what appears to be a constant state of deception. So This particular episode starts with the Walgreens launch. So let me apologize first. I spoiled this for you from our last episode if you watched my video on episode four, because we talked about the Walgreens deal and the $140 million that Walgreens had invested in this. And the plan was to create these, you know, these little uh, wellness centers inside of their stores. And Walgreens, you know, to their benefit, really did a great job fulfilling their end of the bargain. And I think it's clear in this episode when you see their, um, uh, you know, their executives angry at Elizabeth Holmes. At this point, they're like, you've got six months, you've got till September to make that box fit in that hole so we can get this, you know, this concept off the ground. So from my perspective, I think you're really starting to see the whole Walgreens deal expanding. This is kind of a big time for Theranos because not only is it a real legitimate deal with a huge national corporation, but I think it's also the time when Elizabeth Holmes has to recognize the technology doesn't work. What are we gonna do? Are we really gonna put a machine inside of a Walgreens and test people knowing that we can't get an actual result out of it that's legitimate? I think this is where she starts to formulate that knowledge. I know that she understood it didn't work before this, but I really do believe that before this time, they knew that eventually they would make it work, or at least they believed that. But at this point, things are starting to turn south. And I think that's one of the demonstrations that we're seeing throughout the series with things like Elizabeth Holmes lying to her her family members, her brother. Hey, can we talk? No, no, I'm in the middle of a meeting. I thought you were on a plane. Nope, walk into a meeting, Got gotta go, bye. Because she just has so many deceptions going on right now, that it's hard for her to just keep her mind clear. She doesn't want to talk to anybody. She's alienating everybody around her. All right, let's move a little bit further on to part of this series that I thought was uh, particularly dramatic. There is a part that shows the science team in the lab and they've got their Edison machines all lined up and all of a sudden they start to smoke. And as the technicians are trying to figure out what's going on, one of them actually explodes in his face. Do I think that happened? No, there are no indications that I could identify that the machines literally you know, started smoking and caught on fire. But I think it's a um, a good description. I think it's a metaphor for what's really happening is the whole concept is, is on fire and is burning. What we do know from the trial is that at this point in time, Theranos lab employees and the scientists are working 24 hours a day. Many of them are sleeping in their cars or catching catnaps in their offices whenever they can because they're trying to keep Edison machines online. And even though I don't think they actually caught on fire, that was dramatic, what they were doing is they would go down. And in order for the machine to be rebooted, it would take hours to get the software reloaded, to get the machine recalibrated so they could run the same sample over again and they would have constant and continuous failures so I think the fire is really a metaphor for it. The lab is literally, these guys are on fire and they don't know what to do because they can't get this thing to work. Let's talk about David Boys for a second, which is Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos' lawyer. The part in the series, at least in this episode that I thought was interesting, is that David Boys is starting to really light up in, the, um, in his persona. What he does is he talks to Elizabeth Holmes about deposing her ex-neighbor where they're in litigation, as you know from the last episode, for, um, for some patent infringements. And she says, you want to light him up? Ask him to talk about me. And at least in the episode, that's what looks like happens. There is video footage of this deposition. It is out there. It was, I think, a little bit heated because this was personal to him. Uh, This is his neighbor's kid. He believed he had the upper hand with this Theranos deal because he had developed a portion of software that Theranos needed in order to be able to tie their results to any other, you know, reporting, you know, medical reporting software that was on the market. So he thought because he was slick, he had produced this little patent that you know he had theranos, you know, by the cojones, requiring them to have to pay him off to be able to use the technology. And I think one of the things that was brilliant, and I don't know if Holmes did it or if boys did it, was to turn the script on him, sue him for patent infringement, and put him on the defensive, which is exactly what the company did. And I think that that was emotional for him because I don't think he'd ever been in a position where someone had sued him and put him on the mat. So, the part about David Boies that I think is a little telling from a lawyer's perspective is, at this point, David Boies is being paid in stock. He's not actually being paid cash by the company. And the plan was that he would take stock and obviously that stock would be worth more and it would be a good investment for him. So from a lawyer's perspective, he has a personal stake. He is intimately involved In the outcome of the litigation, which is something that is a no-no amongst lawyers. And really, it's in ethics codes of a lot of state bars where you're not supposed to have a financial interest in the outcome of your client's case. Why? Because you are no longer in a position to be able to provide legal advice from a sterile position, from a perspective of an outsider looking in developing a legal strategy and being able to advise people without emotion. And that's the most important part, because once you've got millions of your own dollars at stake, that impartiality goes away and you start drinking your own Kool-Aid, if you don't mind me using that analogy. And I think that's what happened with David And I don't know the man. I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to disparage him. I know he is well-regarded in Silicon Valley and this his law firm represents all the big shots. But I think... We're all human at the end of the day. And I think this particular portion of this episode depicts a lawyer that has jumped in headfirst into this company. He believes in it, he has a financial interest in it, and he is going to prosecute this case because it's in his best interest to do it, um, and that's what he does. So I think they did a great job kind of displaying that from a lawyer's perspective. I don't know if it was that evident to a, a layperson watching this part of that episode, but that's what I took away from it. Okay, let's go on to the you know the elephant in the room, Ian Gibbons. And again, I apologize. I spoiled this for you if you watched my last video for episode four. They actually, the writers this time, do depict the day before his deposition. He is told that, look, go get a doctor to say that you can't testify because you're sick. And he just emotionally, I think, just can't take this especially since the series portrays well that he's been kind of set off. Uh, They they portray him sitting at a desk by himself, listening to music, doing nothing, actually not having done any uh, technical work, no uh, chemical engineering work at all. But I think the reality was he wasn't hired back to the company uh, in his old position. He was hired back as a consultant and they gave him a far smaller role. And I think this was purposeful to kind of, keep him on the payroll, control him, monitor him, but at the same time not give Ian Gibbons an opportunity to really be as big of a a personality uh, for the science team as he was prior. So... Ian does, in fact, uh, overdose on some pills and alcohol the day before his deposition. His wife does find him in the bathroom. He winds up dying a few days later in the hospital. Now, one of I think the writers did take a little creative license in discussing the way that Brandon Morris, who is the other science lab director who is in compete, competition with Ian Gibbons' team, he actually sits down and writes this, you know, beautiful eulogy and talks about Ian Gibbons and all of his accomplishments and all of the patents he was involved with, and he sends it to the whole company and then walks out. What's interesting is he walks out as Tyler Schultz is walking in. He tells him, "Hey, you know, do you have any advice for me on my first day?" And and um, Brandon Morris says, "Leave or quit or whatever he says, get out." What really happens is the actual character that Brandon Morris is being portrayed as, his name is Tony Nugent. And Tony Nugent was another scientist at Theranos. He, though, was not friends with Ian Gibbons. He knew him, obviously, but they weren't very friendly. And I think what the accounts pretty much tell us is that when Ian Gibbons died, he felt slighted because Ian Gibbons was a big personality in the company, and it seems like nobody really did anything to honor his memory. And he, I think he personally felt slighted by that. So he actually did produce an email with this kind of information, all of these accomplishments, all of the wonderful things that he had done in his life, and put down all the patents that Ian had been in, uh, involved with. He sent it to a smaller group of people. It was not a company-wide email. Elizabeth Holmes did actually receive that email. Ultimately, he didn't quit. Sonny Balwani fires the real uh, Brandon Morris, who's again, his name is Tony Nugent, fires him in 2013. So again, a little bit of creative license for the dropout, but the point is well taken. At this point, I think the company was at a place where many people felt that Ian was so important from his role of developing the groundwork for the scientist to function under that he should have been honored when he passed away. And the fact that Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes particularly just kind of ignored his passing um, was something that was big at this particular moment. And great job guys at uh, Hulu for writing it that way. All right. The next part of this episode that I found interesting was Sonny Balwani's aggressiveness starting to show through in episode five. Now, before episode five, we'd seen Sonny Balwani's kind of uh, personality developing, and he was overbearing, maybe demeaning in previous episodes, but we hadn't seen him yet be aggressive to the point of screaming and yelling at Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos, meaning at work. Now, all accounts indicate that, especially you know at the trial, that Sonny Balwani could be this guy. He was aggressive. He was angry. He would cuss at people at work. Nobody has indicated, though, that I could find that Sonny Balwani had ever, you know, swore at, you know, yelled at Elizabeth Holmes publicly before subordinates. But again, I give the Hulu team some creative license to demonstrate, kind of develop that Sonny Balwani is becoming more of just somebody that is overbearing or domineering. Now he's a guy that's aggressive and angry, which is consistent, obviously, with Elizabeth Holmes' version uh, in her testimony. Other than that, uh, I would suggest that he is going to develop this character for us live during his trial, which we will do another video on here shortly, so you can watch that if you wanna talk about the Sonny Balwani trial, which is already begun. Okay, next part of the episode, the opening up of the Siemens machine. All right, let's start with some legal basics. Is it some sort of patent infringement to open up a, a somebody else's computer? No. In fact, when you file a patent, you have to put the schematic of whatever it is that you're doing as part of the patent. That way you can protect it. So opening up the box in and of itself is not a crime. This is not the problem. What is the problem is that Theranos really did use, it's called the Simmons Emulite. Uh, and this was a machine that was commercially available back at the time. We're talking about the 2012, 11, 12, 13 timeframe. And this was really the standard for blood testing in the medical field. So did they open it up and try to figure out how it works? I'm sure they did. Uh, I'm sure a lot of other companies did. But the reality, and I think the, the purpose of this was to demonstrate that at this point, the lab folks understood Sonny Balwani probably, and we'll find out in his trial coming up, Elizabeth Holmes for sure knew that Theranos' machine, Edison, was not producing real results that could be relied upon. So what did they do? They started to run lab tests on commercially available Siemens machines and provide true results, but they did not disclose that the real result was coming from somebody else's technology. So, Great job, again, Hulu writers for putting this in because I think you've really demonstrated the point. One of the areas that I think is very important is the meeting between the marketing team that also worked for Apple and Elizabeth Holmes. And I think that you see her, that love of Steve Jobs and, oh gosh, you guys worked with him and it was, he's such a big loss. I didn't know him, but you know I felt like I knew him, that whole discussion with the marketing team. This is important and I think for accuracy purposes, this actually occurred in the opposite of what is portrayed in the Hulu miniseries. And what I mean by that is this. In the miniseries, Elizabeth Holmes is talking to the marketing team and making corrections about how they should express certain representations for purposes of marketing and advertising. For what I see in the, um, in, in the book and what I've seen based on my you know, observation, the testimony during the trial, it was the opposite way. The folks in the marketing team were actually pressuring Elizabeth Holmes to give them specific data. The reason is they recognize their legal duty to only print in advertisements things that are true and honest. You cannot make representations that are false or make representations that that you know are knowingly misleading. Why? Because A, they're wrong, and B, you could subject yourself to litigation because you're going to get sued for being the company that put the advertisement out there. So it seems like what really happened was the marketing team was pushing. Can you do how many tests? Exactly how many tests? What tests can you do? What is the accuracy level? How long does it take? How can you do it? But but Theranos and Holmes, we'll just intertwine them right now, were really decisive and the marketing team really kind of pushed back and, and were uncertain if they actually wanted to go forward. Ultimately, they did not go forward. They did drop Theranos as a client. I hope I didn't spoil that for the next episode uh, because they recognized it was a moving target. They couldn't get accurate data to support what they wanted to write as an advertisement, so they walked away. Again, no issue with the guys at Hulu. This is true. This did happen. I just think it happened in a different light. So I just wanted to be a little bit more clear about the reality versus the drama. Speaking of drama, uh, the final topic I want to discuss is Uncle Ron. All right. Does Elizabeth Holmes or did Elizabeth Holmes have an Uncle Ron? Yes. His name was Ron Dietz. Did he die of cancer? Yes. Also true. Now, Elizabeth Holmes talks about her Uncle Ron like, he's my uncle. I'm going to the funeral. We're leaving. Sunny Balwani says, where are you going? I'm going to the funeral and walks out. The reality is Uncle Ron did die about this time frame, about 2013. And Elizabeth Holmes did go on TV and talk about, or I should say, shouldn't say, should say on TV, Elizabeth Holmes did do a presentation where she talks about how her Uncle Ron, somebody she looked up to and she loved and they'd go on vacations when they were kids with him, and he was such a big influence in her life. And when he died, his death really was the catalyst that made her want to make medicine better. And it's this wonderful speech, and I think you could find it online if you want to look for it, um, uh, that she gave. But that's all untrue. Uncle Ron dies, just like the, uh, the episode portrays, like within a few months of that particular episode going on. So Uncle Ron's death had absolutely nothing to do with developing Elizabeth Holmes, you know, passion for uh, making medicine better. In fact, if you look at the John Carew book, Bad Blood, he, he talked to some family members and some friends of the family that seemed to indicate that Uncle Ron was not somebody that Elizabeth Holmes really ever spent any time with at all, let alone was very close with. So good job again to the Hulu writers. I think they got this uh, and I think we're gonna see more about it here in, the f- uh, in future episodes about Uncle Ron just was a great marketing piece. We used his death and capitalized on it, but the actual background of it is completely made up and Elizabeth Holmes completely made it up and knew that it was made up when she provided the speech. So with that, that's episode five. If you enjoyed this episode, give me a thumbs up. If you're enjoying this series, again, please subscribe to our channel. And as always, leave me questions and comments below. We will do another video with the Sunny Balwani trial beginning, and I'll tell you what that's looking like in that video coming up soon. But with that, thank you very much, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for watching this episode of The Lawyer You Know. If you like this content, please share it with your friends. Make sure you subscribe to our page and like our videos. If you want some interaction, get in the comments and we'll be sure to get back to you. If you want to know any more information about our firm or this page, you can find out in the description or visit tragoslaw.com. We post multiple times throughout the week, so make sure you hit that bell so you can get the notification and not miss out on the next episode.